right, everybody got their paper who wants one. The first section, no blanks, we're just reviewing at this point. So we're studying Job. It's been interesting so far. Um, somebody give me the 10 second rundown of how Job kicks off. What's the, what's the scenario? God says, look at my great uh, servant Job. He's a righteous man. So look at this great servant Job. Look at how righteous this guy is. Is there anybody on the earth as righteous as my servant Job? Who's he talking to? Satan. He's talking to Satan. He's inviting Satan um, to do ultimately to do what? Let, well, let's test. Let's test the faithfulness of the servant Job, God gives him permission to test and says you can do anything except what? Well, not not yet. That, that's going to be round two. You, you can't touch his body. You can do anything else. So he can kill people, just not Job. He can hurt other people's bodies, just not Job's body. And in Job's life, what's he lose? <laughs> Everything but his wife and his health. So he loses... He, <laughs> That's true. That is true. He got four things. He got to keep four, five, ten, four, at this point, still five things. So he loses ten children, which, you know, we, we, you know, we joke, but I mean, in all seriousness, this would be an awful, awful experience. And on top of that, to lose servants. I mean, these are people he would have cared for, people he, he would have been responsible for. So not alone, not only is there grief and loss, but there's probably a sense of culpability. Or did he do what he was supposed to do? Lots of reasons to grieve. He's lost his possessions. His, his really his standing in the community. His ability to have any control over these issues. And we take a lot of pride sometimes in our control over scenarios. We we built a kingdom, and now we man that kingdom. We run that kingdom. We may sit on the throne in our kingdom, and we can fix problems as they arise in our kingdom. He can't do any of that now. He's he's totally lost all of these things. Of course, he. The famous statement at the end of chapter 1 is the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God wins round 1. So chapter 2 picks up. Almost exact same scenario. The sons of God come. Satan, where you been? Wandering to and fro. Have you considered my servant Job, who still blesses my name, even though you provoked me against him without cause? No reason whatsoever. So it's said over and over and over again in Job that uh, Job did not cause these events to happen to himself. If anything, what invited the, the suffering in Job's life was what part of Job's life? Just how righteous he was. He's so righteous, he became a target, so to speak. And so Job has done nothing wrong without cause. By God's own admission, the evil done against Job is without Call without cause from Job's perspective. Of course, there's a, a heavenly narrative happening, but Job's not privy to that. In fact, we never even get uh, a follow-up on that narrative because once we start chapter, well, before we get to chapter three, so um, Satan is given permission now to touch Job's body, except the hedge. There's still a hedge around Job, but instead of the body, it's just his life. So you just can't kill him, but you can do any anything else. Of course, his wife is still not touched, and so he withers. His disease is horrible. It's, it's agonizing. He's scraping his skin off with a with a bone. He's sitting in ashes. I mean, it's a gruesome scenario. And then what's what's his wife telling? Just just curse God. 
and die. Now, we, we talked about the different possible scenarios that that could have been in. Either way, Job's scenario is awful. His friends hear about it, and they come, and they sit with him silently for a week. And probably weeks have gone by at this point, even before this. So we're several weeks into the narrative. Job's lost everything. He's lost his health. He's alive. His friends are sitting there comforting him. And then we get Job chapter 3. Very significant chapter biblically. And it's where Job, what's Job do in that chapter? You remember? It's his first statement after the long period of silence. He Literally, the, the, the main idea is he's cursing the day of his birth. And it ends with this sort of, why me? God, why are you doing this to me? I didn't deserve this, which we know to be true. Because we have, we're privy to the story that Job's not privy to, at least not in the beginning. We don't know what Job finds out later. We just know at this point in the story for sure, he doesn't know that other than he knows his own heart. He knows his own life. He knows he didn't do anything. He's been faithful to Yahweh. He's been faithful to the Lord. And we know for sure as the outside observer that this is the case. And then his friends, instead of comforting him with their presence, start to try to comfort them, comfort him with their words. Of course, the joke is usually they would have remained good comforters if they had remained silent. But they opened their mouths and they began to preach at Job uh, more than comfort Job. What would you tell Job at this moment? What do you think the right answers would be? <laughs> this sucks. This sucks. So honestly, that would have been better than what they do, because essentially all of Job's friends, and so this is the reading the dialogue of Job, so this will be our first blank where there's a fill-in. Um, all of Job's friends argue that suffering and blessing are always the result of sin and righteousness. Follow that? So all three friends, what is it, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Thing. I'm probably not spelling those right. They really have the same message. They coach it in different terms. They, they're all using poetry form to, to say this. And of course, it's probably being narrated that way. I doubt they literally used poetry when they were having the conversation. But in essence, their conversation is the same every time. Uh, they're telling Job, your fault. Because, and they're not just condemning Job out of the blue. There is a principle, it's your fault, because sin equals wrath, period. So if there's anything going wrong in your life, guaranteed it is connected to some specific sin in your life. You do something wrong, something bad happens. Hypothetically, you do nothing wrong, what would happen? Only blessing. So if you're righteous, equals blessing. They say that about every way you could fathom. Um, you'll live longer. You'll have more kids. One of the innocent ever perished. If God's good, he's not going to punish good people. All kinds of different ways throughout the book, they make this statement. If you sin, there is wrath. If you do righteousness, there is blessing. Now, I guess it's possible you could have a mixture because you have some sin and you have some righteousness. Now, remember, the book of Job is not written to give us soteriology. 
know that word? Got to use big words at Church of the Square every now and then. Okay? It's an ology, so it's the study of something. We're together on that? This is salvation. So the doctrine of salvation, how would it deal with this statement, sin and righteousness? <laughs> We'd say this is 100% of everyone. You deserved this. 100% of everyone. Jesus was 100% righteous. And if you believe in him, you get the blessings of salvation 100%. Right? That's how the gospel works through these scenarios. The book of Job is not about that. This is true. This is the gospel. This is the New Testament. This is what Paul preaches. This is what we should be saying all of the time. But that is not what the book of Job is about. The book of Job is about, do you remember the fancy word we used the first week? Theodicy. Which is a defense of God. And it's just asking the question, is God just? Remember, we could ask, answer that question two ways. We can ask that question globally. Is our God good from a cosmic perspective? But the fact of the matter is it really doesn't matter how you answer the question globally. You only actually care, if you're honest with yourself, about whether or not God feels good to you. And what we instead of globally, what do we call that? We said locally. You're, you're concerned about a local theodicy, which is exactly where Job ended up in chapter 3, is has God done what is right to me? So this is what the book of Job is trying to deal with. And when we look at that framework, we're going to see that the, the correlations here are not that clear cut. Not everything you reap did you sow. Does that make sense? Question. I think most of us would, and it's because we have a rigid principle of you reap what you sow. Yeah. And that principle is not biblical. Yeah, and I think, I, mean, I was just admitting, like, I think I would be one of those guys. Yes. Well, because there is a principle of you reap what you sow. I mean, when I say that, I'm quoting Galatians 6-7. I mean, that's literally what Paul's talking about. But we cannot interpret that rigidly. You can reap good things all day long and someone come mow your field down. You can plant nothing but good stuff and somebody else threw seed in there for weeds. I mean, technically there's a correlation between you reaping what you sow, but that's a completely isolated idea because you're not the only one going out in the field. If you were the only one going in the field, period, no birds, no wildlife, there was only the rain, the sunshine, and the dirt, you would, you would reap what you sow. But that's not what it is, is it? We share that field. There's a lot more going on. 
Job has to share this field with Satan. And Satan's sowing something else. Does that make sense? So the, the rigid scenario of we see evil happening, therefore there's sin, is one of the things the book of Job is trying to fight against. That's not what's happening. Point being, every time Job's friends speak, they're just trying to say, Job, if there's wrath of any kind in your life, is there any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, that means there is a sin, period. Now we can, of course, argue that no matter what happens in your life, it's it's less than you deserve. You're a sinner. You do deserve God's wrath. But that's talking about the doctrine of salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. It's talking about life and how we view God as God good. So everybody follow what I'm saying so far? All right. Next. So second even blank. God is saying he doesn't deserve it. I mean, even God yes. Even saying, God is saying he didn't deserve it. this with no cause, with no reason. Yes. God's exact expression was without cause. We know that as the reader. I mean, if we didn't have that narrative, I'm not sure we would know that Job's friends were wrong. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because Job's friends are very compelling. And at the end of the book, it's like it's reinforced. God steps out and says, the friends were wrong. Job was right. Okay, well, very good. We have clarification on that point. But because... When we were reading chapter 3, if you may remember, Job said some pretty nasty things. I mean, he just would rather his, he never existed, all that stuff. So we ended in chapter 7. We're going to pick up in chapter 8. Uh, well, let me, let's finish reading the dialogue of Job part. So Job questions that his suffering is connected to sin and expresses his innocence before God. So this is just a summary. Every time there's a exchange between Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job, that's the scenario. Eliphaz says, Job, it's your fault. Job is going to respond. It's not my fault. Bildad is going to say, no, Job, but it is your fault. Job will say, it's not my fault. So far, in a new creative way, say, it's definitely your fault. Job will say, you guys are talking too much. It's not my fault. And that's one cycle. Then we repeat that exact cycle two more times. And then Job just gets mad and like he cuts off in the middle. He doesn't let Zophar go. He actually cuts Bildad off in the middle of his speech. And then he just rants for like six or seven chapters. And then Elihu shows up, you know, and it's like it just gets more complicated. We're not going to get that far tonight. Hopefully (laughs) it's seven after. The goal was to get to 19 and we haven't started yet. So (laughs) we'll see what happens. All right. And the heart of Job's dialogue is why would God let me suffer? That's really what he's asking. Why would God let me suffer? Did God let him suffer? Let's just be clear on that point. Yes. No question. God let him suffer. Why would God let me suffer? That's the question. So let's dive in chapter 8. So what we're going to do is just look at this in terms of cycles. So the first one we did last week was Eliphaz makes his statement. And then Job responds. And now Bildad is going to make a statement. And then Job is going to respond. So we, we did this one already, and now we're going to do Bildad picking up in chapter 8. How would mean? And that's just the, the pattern it follows each time. So let's jump down. Bildad starts 8-1, but let's jump down um, to verse 6 just to see the heart of what he's saying. If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. So... 
That's interesting. We won't go there tonight. But that is indeed actually what ends up happening with Job. But on the short term, that's not what's happening. Job's been suffering for weeks. And Bildad's saying, if you were in the right, God wouldn't let this continue. But he did let it continue. Therefore, you're in the wrong. That's all Bildad is saying over the course of that section. Now, chapter 9. Let's see how Job responds. So we're going to emphasize Job's responses more than the guy's statements because the guy's statements are really just a thousand different ways to say Job is your fault. So they don't say that much more from this point forward that's interesting. Um, but Job is going to say a lot of interesting stuff and experience a very interesting roller coaster ride of emotions as he goes forward. So let's read how Job answers his friend in chapter 9. Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? How can a man be right before God? Here's the heart of what Job is asking God is God. Job is a person. If Job has a complaint against God, how exactly would he even file it? You know, if you're in a work scenario and you have a disagreement with an employee, what would you do? File a grievance with someone who has some sort of jurisdiction over the scenario. Well, what if your your grievance is with the CEO? Maybe, maybe you go to the board of trustees, right? Maybe you got some other higher level. You realize at some point, though, if your grievance is with the top of the hierarchy, what can you do about it? So, so let's say hypothetically, let's say God does wrong you. Let's just say God, God wronged you. So you're in the right. God is in the wrong. How do you go before God? And be right in his presence. And what could he do? He could, nothing ever happened. <laughs> he could utterly destroy you. He could just make you sound like an idiot, even if you were right. That, that's the heart of what he's going to say. Um, look at verse 15. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. You hear what he's saying? Like, I'm trying to prove to the judge that the judge did the wrong thing. You hear the, there's a little bit of hopelessness in in his emotion at this point. So let's just say Job's right and God did do something wrong. Job couldn't even do anything about it. He's God. What would he say? How could he even convince God if there was something wrong? So he's kind of frustrated when, when he's talking about this, but let's jump to the end of the, the chapter, end of verse, uh, chapter 9. Let's pick up at verse 32. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Now, immediately we read that and we think, well, wait a second. Is there an arbiter between us? Is there a mediator between God and man? Okay, yeah, there is. There definitely is in the New Testament a very clear picture of a mediator, but that's not quite what Job is talking about. Because what's this arbiter supposed to do? Lay a hand on both of us. So the arbiter would have to be what? Above. And that doesn't exist. So you can see this kind of frustration building up 
in Joe's mind. In fact, he makes a few statements we don't have time to unpack, like God brings disaster and then he laughs about it. You know, the innocent suffering. He's <laughs> look at these innocent little. So I mean, he's really getting frustrated. That was back in verse 23. All right, but going into chapter 10, um, I want to look at the very end of his complaint. So we're having to skip a lot, but but see what he says. Let's pick up in verse 18. So Job chapter 10, verse 18. And this is what he says. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. Now, who's he talking to? Before I go and I shall not, I shall not return. Everybody just said, Job said, I'm going to go to the grave and I'm not coming back. Now what's missing from the theology right there? Resurrection. Resurrection. I think about the significance of that. Is Job teaching us that there's, there's no resurrection? How's it in? It says, I'm going to go to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any other, where light is as thick darkness. I think our hymns would sound different if the third verse was about the great thick darkness that we were going to instead of the light and the hope of resurrection, right? I mean, in fact, I don't think we would really get that excited about those lines in the songs. And, you know, and when we've been in the darkness for 10,000 years, we won't be singing at all because we'll all be dead and be misery. Instead of when we've been there 10,000 years, we're shining on the sun. No less days to sing good praise than when we first began. You see, the resurrection's changed everything, but he's got no view of that at this point. So you see, where's Job's attitude? If all you have is what is right now, would you be satisfied with what you've got? Or to challenge you, would Job be? So if you were Job, and the only hope of blessing you were ever going to get from the Lord was back when you did have ten kids, back when you did have that stuff, now everything is darkness and loss, and you're just going to die this way. And that was going to be it. There's no hope in that, right? All right. Now, what we're going to see is this is one of those low points. Job is going to fluctuate. Have you ever gone through a grieving period, or a sadness period, and it, it is a roller coaster? Depression can work like this. Anxiety can work like this. Where, and you have your good moments, and then tomorrow you, you don't care. Life is all black and darkness. And then two days later, it's eh, it's okay again. Then it's black and darkness. Well, where's Job in chapter 10? Darkness. I literally, he said the word darkness like eight times in the last two verses. Darkness, darkness, darkness. Question. Did you say Job is patriarchal. But Abraham is time, yes. Pre-Israel conquering Canaan time. But we, we can't get more specific than that. Well, so how does Noah know about Jehovah God? You know, because like God's interacting with people outside of it. We have this Melchizedek character show up. We've, we've got uh, Balaam, um, a prophet of Yahweh, when God's people are coming in to Israel. And he's speaking to the Lord himself. So God's interacting with folks outside of the camp of Israel um, at points in the Old Testament. That, that We see that happen. And Job is probably in that case. We don't know that Job is Jewish. 
It might just be Canaanite. Um, we, don't, we don't know exactly. Does that make sense? Right. We know he's not in the genealogy. Right. So. Um, that would know about the promise all the way from Adam and Eve, which makes he, he would have known some understanding of the Savior. But that, well, I mean, he's clearly got something. Now, one thing we can't do with Job is create the scenario where here's all the theology that Abraham would have had, and so Job would have had. We don't know everything Abraham had. When Abraham grew up polytheist, and then one God starts talking to him and says, all right, go to go to the land of Canaan. And he went from paganism to Yahweh. And so we don't even know how thorough Abraham's understanding of stuff is. We just know from Moses's writing, you know, Moses is where we first get systematic theology in the Hebrew world. So we don't know how much Job would have had other than we know he calls him the Lord. You know, so he's got some of this lingo, but the lingo goes back to Adam and Eve, so it's it's not impossible that it was around. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. we're getting a gray area. We can't we can't fully. Okay. I wish we could. Was his? Do we know? Was his understanding of the resurrection? Like I know with David, when he when he claimed when he claimed the resurrection in his future, mm-hmm. that was that was not typical belief that was believed to be revealed by God to him. So was there a point where Job believed in the resurrection and now he's saying probably not? Or was that part of the roller coaster? This this is part of the roller coaster. It's also part of the structure we're trying to do tonight. I don't know if I can do it in 12 minutes. So for the sake of uh, maybe jumping the gun a little bit, I I think I'm going to go ahead and kind of work this out. So Job is... Part of his emotional roller coaster is he's having to deal with this idea of hope. So when everything first went wrong, what's his response? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. And then God, you know, makes it worse. He gets sick. And anybody remember his statement there in chapter 2? After when he's talking to his wife, his wife says, just curse God and die. How's Job respond? He says, well, for one, you're full. But then when he gives the, the the more theological statement, he says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not also receive evil, literally? But why would he say a statement like that? What's he assuming about God that makes him say something like that? Okay. Justice, well, for one, he's he has the prerogative, he has the authority to dish out. And if I'm going to submit to that authority then I have to submit on either side of the coin or else I'm not really submitting. Right? Isn't that exactly what Satan is saying about Job in the first place? So, I mean, Job solidly wins both rounds in the, in the whole debate. Is Job going to bless you either way? Yes, because he believes in God's godness. So he submits to God. God is God. As in God is all powerful. He can do this stuff. He has the authority, the right to do whatever he wants. I will yield to him for no other reason than he's God. Doesn't matter if I like it. Doesn't matter if he was good. He's God, and we have to yield. If we're going to say we're followers of God, you can be a follower of God, and God technically be a bad guy, right? If he was God, I mean, 
our God is not bad, so that's not, not our scenario. But the point is the authority, this, this part of the discussion, you can submit to God whether he was good or not. Now, we like to kind of have this high-browed sort of, well, I wouldn't worship God if he wasn't good. Yeah, but he could make you. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It doesn't matter. God is God. Job gets that. Job submits to that. Whether God is doing perceived good or not, Job admits that God is God and Job will submit to God. What Job is now struggling with is the exact question. So God is God, but is God good? He knows God is just. God will do what is right. So he's got to put these two things together. That's the whole idea of theodicy, right? If God is God and he's just, how could the innocent suffer? Because he could clearly stop it. And if he's just, he should stop it. So really to say God is God and God is just is only one step away from having to say God is good. So if he's just, he must then also be good. So Job is wrestling with this. Now what's going to happen, and I wanted to show you this in a more drawn out linear sort of progression. Job is going to make some statements like, though God slay me, I still have hope because he's good. I didn't say because, because, because he's just. I still have hope. There's judgment coming. God will write this. In the end, I know my God will write this. Now think about this. If Job is saying this, this is a progression that's happening in Job's mind. He knows God is God. He knows God is just. If God is just, in the end, what must happen? Right? Wrongs must be righted. How do you get that from just being just? Just doesn't mean you're good. Okay, it just depends on your definition of good, because I would say yes, it does. So um, there's a bad guy in town. The cowboy rolls in, takes care of the bad guy. Then he's the good guy, specifically because he removed the evil. See how we're using like the we're using good in that sense. You follow me at all? They're following you. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll work it out later. All right, here's what I'm saying. So, so just follow Job's logic. He knows God is God can do anything he wants. He's clearly doing anything he wants. He believes his God is just, meaning God will punish the wicked and not punish the innocent. Follow that. What does Job know about himself? He's the innocent. So, the only way Job can maintain that God is God and that God is just is that in some future point, what has to happen? God has to vindicate me. So Job's going to follow a progression. He's, he's real depressed now. Like, no good's coming. Like, I'm going to die. I'm going to just go to darkness. It's going to be a, a waste of my time. And then he's going to say, for me, it's on the next page, chapter 3, though he slay me, I still have hope, yet I will argue my ways to his face. So he knows if God is just, he's going to get an opportunity to have this conversation with God and talk it out. God's a just God. There's no way God would overlook this. If he's a just God and if he's a good, if he's a God God, then he can make this happen. I'm going to get to talk to him, and then there will be a judgment. And then he... Um, Fast forward to chapter 17. He says, if I hope for Sheol as my house, and if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, my sister, where then is my hope? 
He's connecting the fact that if I just die and this is it, my hope doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me to believe God is just if this is it. Then one more progression, chapter 19. Let's uh, let's just pick up in verse 25. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. What did he just say? I'm going to be resurrected, and we're going to we're going to see him. God's going to vindicate this. My point is, Job on this emotional roller coaster has an epiphany. The only way in his mind for God to be God and for God to be just is for there to be a resurrection where God makes things right. Because technically, the friends are right in that God's going to do the right thing. The innocent are going to be blessed. The evil is going to be punished. Yet in this life, we see innocent people die and good people prosper. So the only way God can still be good, ultimately, guys, here's our theodicy. The theodicy equals resurrection where God redeems. He's going to fix this. That's the theodicy of the book of Job. You follow what I'm saying at all? We got complicated when we ran out of time. So I ran through all of that. Did his friends talk about resurrection at all? No. Or even believe, not even believe We don't know exactly what they believed. I doubt it because Judaism is the only ancient religion that had resurrection. So the chances of them having it are basically zero. But I, I, since they don't talk about it, I can't say. Jake's got a... <laughs> okay. Well, um, Abraham was probably Chaldean or, or something. Definitely, like that. yeah. Mm-hmm. He came from Ur. Yes. And, and the, a couple of the guys in the book are from Edom. One of them is Edom. I don't know what it But So they're probably... Yeah, I mean, I got. Exactly, out to be brought up underneath. They could be totally separate outside of, you know, split from. Sure. Canaan side of this thing. Yeah. But even uh, even, um, Ishmael was, you know, had some theology, but not all of it. Sure. I don't, th- yeah, I don't, yeah, okay, that, if that's what we're asking, I don't think Job knew it going in. I think he f- figured it out. And in a certain sort of God's working in him sort of way, but I think the light bulb goes off and he realizes the only way this works is if he's going to do something in the end. And you say, I mean, even Ecclesiastes ends that way. And life is completely useless. And then, boom, the very last verse, you know, but there's judgment coming. Something else is coming. You got to live for the something else. So I mean, so the re- resurrection is most clearly taught in the New Testament, obviously. But in the Old Testament, what I'm saying is, it's already there, and it's already the answer <laughs> to the question, and basically the old story that we have. Okay, we didn't fill in any blanks. Sorry, we we derailed really bad, but I think we had an interesting conversation. Yeah.
<laughs> so let's let's fill in some of these blanks. Did we do anything under the question of Job? No. All right. So these are questions Job is is asking as he's wrestling, and he does these a bunch of different ways as well. Who can stand before the Almighty God and question His works? That's that whole first bit. Like Job's just a man. God's authority is He's so transcendent. How could there even be hope of a man asking God anything? And then, does God really even understand what it feels like to suffer as a man under such a powerful God? And again, that one also is is concluded in the New Testament. How do we answer that question in the New Testament? He, He becomes a man. And we answer that question literally and directly because Jesus experienced it just like we do. And then he asked the question, why let me live if you are only going to let me suffer? Now, those are precursor questions that set up what becomes his hope. And then his hope. So while Job has experienced extreme suffering from God's hand, he maintains that it is he who is actually on God's side speaking God's wisdom. Now, this is when you're reading the little cycles. It's, they're all saying, Job, you're, you've done something wrong and you've sinned. And Job is the one who's saying, no, no, I, God's, he's, he's, he's doing this to me, yes. But I'm actually the one that's been following God the whole time. I'm on his team and I'm receiving the evil from him just like I received the good. Does that make sense? So he's arguing this. No, I'm, at no point did Job ever change religions and give up on God. Now he gets frustrated. Sure, there's a roller coaster of emotions. But the whole time, he's not only innocent, he's still faithful. He still thinks he's on God's side. So Job fully expects that he will get to speak with God face to face to make make right his argument. I'd probably change that sentence, and that doesn't make sense. He's going to make his argument before God is what I'm trying to say. And then in a moment of clarity... Job realizes that the only way for God's justice to work with human mortality is for something to happen after the grave. That's where all that was going. So we technically made it to chapter 19. We read like three verses, but you can't claim those. Sorry. What you need to go go do, go home and reread this now with this lens and see the progression. It's there. Now, this is like the high point of his roller coaster ride. So it dips right back down. So he's going to go back into depression and all that before the next high point, God shows up and talks. So that's a really cool high point. Um, but, but this is the – there's two high points is what I'm saying. So we've, we went down. We came back up. High point. Now next week we're going to drop way, way back down again. So, All right. Any questions on where we're at right now? I feel like that was kind of discombobulated. I don't know. This I just hope so I just hope something happens. This is, I mean, I, I don't. It's almost like I feel like I'm back where, like, right when I was saved. It is so convicting because we're hearing it, we're understanding it. I think, and yet, I feel like that all the time. and yet we look at our brothers and sisters, and and having gone through years of really, really, really tough struggle, what would it have done to have three friends that would come up alongside you and say, hey, man, just, you know, just keep pushing through. You know, that's that's what Jesus meant when he said they'll know you're Christians by your love. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what we, that's so critical that we 
embrace those that are going through the hard times and and encourage to make it through the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's so debilitating when you're going, you know, when you're in that that place and. I think a lot of times our first reaction in a bad scenario is to try to defend God. He's he's good. He, he can he can handle this. Just let's comfort the person who's suffering. Does that make sense? I mean, Job, Job is the one who was God defends at the end, but Job still got bad. You know, he, he had the emotion. There's nothing wrong with the emotional roller coaster. That's that's acceptable. We need to meet people where they are. All right, well, let's uh, pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for today, this opportunity to study your word. I just pray that this would be useful to us as we study Job. Such a beautiful narrative about your goodness and your justice and the suffering that we experience. God, I pray that you would meet us where we are. Let us draw near. Let us uh, rest in Christ. Let us know the joy of salvation even among and amidst the suffering that we often experience. God, we know that it's worth it. We know that one day a day is coming where the glory that will be revealed will make all of this seem as nothing. God, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. We want to share the gospel so more people know that day. Uh, encourage us with this. Equip us with this. And give us the strength to persevere. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right.